Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Colin Lewis, arguably Ireland's greatest marketer and more highly decorated than a Christmas tree on Dublin's Grafton Street, Colin's vast experience and multiple industry awards come from a career that includes work at iconic brands like BMI, 118118, Thomas Cook and CityJet. He's worked all over the world, including Australia, Hong Kong, Japan, Indonesia, the UK and Ireland. And he's not just content with winning awards, he also judges them. He's a speaker, lecturer and teacher, educating brands such as Unilever, Facebook, Ryanair and Heineken, and is currently the CMO at Open Jaw Technologies. Colin is also the founder of DMX Dublin, the largest digital marketing conference in Ireland, and still finds time to write a column for Marketing Week, author e-commerce reports, and race motorcars. Colin says, customers will go where they want. The choice is theirs. These barriers we put in front of them are our choice and make a joke of the words customer experience. Welcome to the show, Colin. Good afternoon. How are you? Thank you for inviting me to the, sh- to the show. Yeah, very well. Delighted to talk, Colin. Yeah, no, it's going to be great fun. Good. Well, let's start with our seven quick fire questions, Colin. Mac or PC? PC all the way. The drum or campaign? Ooh, tough. Mm, the drum. Cafe Rouge or Eau Rouge? Ah, uh, Eau Rouge every day. North side or south side? Oh, I'm north side originally, but I live on the south side. So let's say I've got a you know a leg and bo- a foot in both counts. Ryanair or Aer Lingus? Aer Lingus. Can or Le Mans? Can. <laughs> and finally, five G or four MGs? Uh, the latter, obviously. <laughs> For reasons that will become, uh, everybody will become aware of shortly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so how did it all start for you, Colin? What was your first job and, and what was your first marketing job? It, well, my very first marketing job was my very first job. I had, had studied marketing in university and uh, I had the ill luck to leave university in the late 80s. And uh, when there was a lot less marketing jobs than there are today, a lot less choice. And so my very first job was the decidedly unglamorous world of aluminium sheeting and aluminium extrusions, where I started as a marketing assistant. And uh, I lasted uh, all of, I think it was seven weeks, uh, because the I, I, I had the ill luck to be hired the day, two weeks before the chief exec of 25 years got the sack. And he was the only one who knew why I was there. And as they gave me my, my check as I left, they said, I don't know what you were hired for, but here's a check. And it was for £156 as my uh, redundancy check. I can remember it distinctly. It was the happiest day of my life. It was probably the most money I've ever seen. 
<laughs> downhill since then. <laughs> you know, Alan, ask me anything about extrusions, I'm all over it. <laughs> so what happened then? Then what happened then after that seven weeks and check? Uh, I I obviously was delighted to leave that job because it wasn't say what it was made out for. But uh, I started working for a company which is kind of a conglomerate of individual uh, consumer brands, B two B brands. That I started as a marketing assistant. I did everything from um, deliver jams and marmalades to retail outlets to you know dealing with Marks and Spencers in Paris and all sorts of things. It was a really good training. Uh, and then uh, I threw it all in and emigrated to Australia and lived there for eight years between Australia and Asia uh, and all around the world and worked for Tom's Cook. So, yeah, it was a big leap. And how did it differ in, in Australia? Well, I was a very young, innocent whippersnipper and uh, suddenly at the age of whatever age it was, 25, I had a job where it included a view over Sydney Harbour. And I was like... Clenched, clenched fist, you know, the, the fist in the air going, I finally made it. And, uh, you know, big budgets, you know, cross-country campaigns, uh, cross-continent campaigns. And uh, yeah, it was just a totally different world. It's where I grew up and become a became an adult, is the best way to put it. I became a, a, a real marketer. Yeah, it was, it was great times, great times. Um, were there other factors that took you to Australia or was it literally to take that role? No, no, God, no. I arrived with 200 euros and one telephone, or $200 and one, tel- and one telephone number. So I just did it from scratch. Um, I did have the far side on this though, and this is for any of you young people out there thinking about stuff. Do, do play a long game. Uh, I actually did apply for an Australian visa. I did think about it all and I planned it for two years. So I was thinking ahead even at the age of 23, which was... Most people who know me would find that quite astounding, but I do actually think ahead, and uh, it's it, it, it was amazing. And actually, one point came from that um, as I was thinking through some of the things I might say. I did not get lucky. Uh, I mean, the, the, the I had a selection of crappy jobs in Australia, but eventually I got lucky because I was thorough. I think it was the 200th job I applied for it was the Thomas Cook job. So by the time I got to that interview, I was... I was all over it and I was on fire. So that's what I say to young people, which is you know, looking for career in marketing. You're not going to, it may not happen day one, door one, door two, door three, door four, but you might need to get to open the door 12 and by then you'll be ready. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's a really key point. Mm. Um, you, you talk about, in fact, um, in a recent article on on linkedin about marketing education needing to change so would you would you still encourage younger people listening to pursue marketing education and you're merely remarking that it needs to to update itself or or become a bit more relevant to the real world of marketing or do you encourage people to literally go out and try anything um i say do the education does that mean you have to do three years of an undergraduate degree in marketing no not necessarily but let me explain my my context here is that i did an undergraduate degree and then i did a postgraduate and then 10 or 15 years later i did a did an mba and actually when i was in the middle of the nda mba i decided to double down my existing marketing knowledge and Subsequent to the MBA, I realized I'd, you know, if I just observed what I was doing, I was basically trapped in this world of tactics. I didn't really know, you know, the world of strategy correctly. And what I say now is you must do the bare minimum of one or two years, really detailed marketing training, because you do not have the language, you do not have the vocabulary, and you just fall into this world of tactics. And how do I know? Because I was that person. 
that is exactly what I was like. Uh, to be a modern day marketer, you must have the basics. Now, as it happens over the next couple of weeks, I'm teaching um, strategy uh, and marketing strategy to a number of uh, classes, a number of companies again. And I went back to basics again and reread everything that I thought I knew and went and said, you know, I'm missing that as well. So what I say to people is you must get the basics done. I don't mind what your undergraduate degree is, but you have to have to study marketing. And I have no time for anybody who says, sure, anybody can do that because that's what gives us all a bad name. Mm. And really, it's probably fair to say that the, you know, the strategic principles remain fairly timeless. It's the, it's the tactical tools that constantly evolve and, and are updated. Well, it, I think that the phrase I wrote was something like strategies saying change sometimes. Um, uh, tactics change quite a lot. But strategy rarely changes. Yeah? Strategy is something you're doing over. In fact, right now I'm doing a strategic rethink of everything I've done uh, for the last three years here in Openjaw. But the, the core strategy has been the same. We've just got better with the execution over the last couple of years, but the strategy hasn't changed. Now we're throwing out, we're going back to a bit of zero-based thinking, and we're uh, throwing out the, the strategy and going, is this where we start now? Or you know, is it good enough? Is it fit for purpose for the future? So like even me, with my experience and my knowledge, I'm still going... I've got to come back to strategy. I've got to keep coming back to strategy because you can get lazy very quickly. Mm. And did you, do you think you realized that um, and subsequently did the MBA to plug that gap or was it during the process of your MBA you, 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 you realized that perhaps um, you had been chasing tactics? Uh, you know, I, I'd like to go and claim I had uh, lots of insight uh, beforehand, but no, it, it wasn't like that at all. Where it really kind of came to the fore was... Uh, very simple. I, I, I remortgaged my house to do the MBA, pretty grand. Yeah, and wow. in the middle of the MBA, it was like, oh, I, th- I, keep, I can hear myself saying to myself, "Sure, I know this, that I know this," and it was the moment where I went and said, "Stop kidding yourself. Just stop believing your own stuff." And I say this to everybody: once you hear yourself say, "No, I got that," that's when your your learning is is over. You have to keep saying to yourself. No, what if I don't know this? What if I really don't know this at a granular level? And it was the moment I decided to do that, which was admit to myself, maybe I don't know everything. Maybe I just need to be on a constant learning curve. Well, then that's when everything started improving for me. And the the, the specific part to that, then a couple of years after the MBA, I started teaching. And it was when you start teaching, do you realize, oh, there's more gaps here than a Swiss cheese, in some of my knowledge. So, how did teaching change your uh, understanding of marketing and your and your skill sets? So, if you haven't done any teaching or presenting your ideas, what I would say to everybody listening here is, the way to become good at anything, and it doesn't matter whether it's uh, golf or, uh, you know, marketing or you know, race car driving, the way to become good is to try and teach somebody else that skill. The way to become good is to try and teach what you have. To somebody else and it doesn't matter as I say regardless of how trivial it is um, because that is when you have to start having coherent ideas that are within a framework that somebody else can understand and the more you do that the better you become and the more you understand your discipline and uh, I would say if you imagine a curve which was kind of fairly flat for a long period of time and then just suddenly turns up exponentially towards the end that metaphor I'm using there is how I apply my own thinking about marketing, which was pretty good, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good, start teaching, and then the curve just went straight upwards. Mm. And so you not only, you don't kind of, it's not a set of half-baked concepts in your mind. 
It's a solid base of concepts you understand, which you can then apply and communicate to senior management, you can communicate to team, you can communicate to staff with you know, the ground you know, on your feet being pretty solid. So with that in mind, how can, how can everyone listening become better marketers? I mean, you, you wrote, just to cite another one of your recent articles, you wrote a great piece recently about the importance of asking the right questions rather than having the right answers. Yeah, well, the first point to call on is admit to yourself that you, maybe you don't know everything, okay? Because we are all a, a series of biases. I'm sure we have to talk about biases later, but admit, the first thing is, you know, admit that you don't know everything, okay? And then the second thing is, uh, as I wrote with that article, is like we're always looking for solutions. Whereas in fact, maybe it's keep asking, start getting to a situation where you can ask the right question. Because if you don't have the right question, the answers are going to be fairly muddled or they're going to be incoherent or not applicable. And people jump into solution mode with questioning all the time. And what they're trying to do then, what happens then is you simply reinforce ideas that are already there. And no new ideas or mindsets or insights are going to come from that. And of course, we all we all want our ideas to be reinforced. But actually, the, the, the super skill of being a marketer is going, maybe my opinion is not relevant here. Maybe it's the correct questions I need to do it. And I actually, even in the article, talk about how to become a better questioner, which is by doing so, you, you, you become, uh, it builds a virtuous circle because you're asking empowering questions and why questions and why did this campaign work? Uh, let's look at the data, what if questions and how might we questions? You touched on something there, which I think is, is key, which is maybe my opinion doesn't necessarily matter in this instance or isn't the, you know, certainly the right starting point. In, what, in, in 100% of the cases when I'm doing my classes, um, within five minutes, and I'm talking about a concept and, you know, within five minutes at the start of the class, somebody puts up their hand and says, well, I don't do that or I don't believe that or, you know, my opinion is this. And then it's kind of a setup because I know it's going to happen because I've seen it so often. And then I go and say, you know, what you need to understand is your opinion is totally irrelevant. And keep saying it to yourself. And I write it on the board and I have it all up. But basically, your opinion is totally irrelevant as a marketer. Your role is to look inside the other person's mind and be market orientated. Your opinion is totally irrelevant. Do you see people making that mistake across businesses? Do you, do you see marketers making that mistake regardless of their seniority? It's, we're, we're walking around with this kind of wall in front of us or sort of like glass in front of us that's kind of you know, darkened glass or you, know, you can't see through it where it's basically you're walking around thinking my opinions are relevant, my opinions count in this context here. And it basically acts as a blocker for you to actually see the true situation of what's really going on. Uh, I quote in the article that in the future, it won't be about what you know, but the quality of questions you ask that will be the most important. Because what we're always doing is filtering everything through an existing frame of reference. And if you don't have good quality questions, it's your existing frame of reference will just keep getting reinforced. So you've got to always look out for, is this my opinion here, or is this a a fact or an insight I'm building out here? And I, I have a fun story on this one, which is the it's kind of like, uh, and I do this in the classes as well. If somebody came to you and, and I do this, I say, um, so I have, uh, I ask a person maybe in a couple of front rows and I say, what sort of car do you want to have? And they say, uh, BMW or a Toyota. And I say, well, I've got four MGs, uh, four MG cars, all in various states of disrepair. 
and um, how come you don't have an MG? Because I have an MG. Um, you should have an MG. Isn't that, isn't that true? Why would you have a BMW when you could have an MG? And they look at me as though I'm just a total idiot, which, of course, I'm having it up for the audience. But it's, it's basically to show if somebody came to you and said, I have this type of car, you should have that type of car, you're having the wrong type of car, they would just think they're an idiot. Well, that's what happens when people talk about their opinions, which is they say, well, I think nobody, nobody watches uh, linear television, you know, daytime television or whatever, you know, BBC One, BBC Two. Nobody does that anymore. No, no, you don't, but the majority of people do. Yeah. Uh, everybody's on Twitter. No, they're not. Yeah. Everybody's on Facebook. No, they're not. Yeah. Just because you are. Okay. As the moment you hear yourself saying, oh, well, you know, well, I think what you got to do is think of Colin going, I've got four NGs. How come you don't? Yeah. Great example. And does that always happen in um, in lesson one with Colin? No, it's always within five minutes. It was after like five or ten, <laughs> five ten years of teaching, you start seeing some patterns. And and, and, and it's like, I said, oh, that's an interesting, that's your opinion. Okay. Uh, I said, well, you know what, let me tell you about my four NGs. And they just look at me going, who is this? idiot what's he on about uh and i'm doing a class over the next few days i'm gonna i i could pretty much guarantee uh that's gonna happen within the first uh, 10 minutes all the time so it's 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 as a as a professional marketer your opinions are irrelevant it's just as well it does come up within five minutes or certainly less than one because that is it is you know the fundamental state of mind that you have to take in order to then look at building a, a marketing strategy so for anyone listening who's who's unsure how best to do it how, how can people become market oriented is it just literally that state of mind let's just empty our heads of what we think we know and start filling it with research it's a great question people have different ways of doing the same thing as long as it's under the umbrella of what we'll call loosely called market orientation go and approach it the best way you can but before that the first thing is to understand what what strategy is and richard rummel talks about this in good strategy bad strategy he says strategy is designing a way to deal with the challenge strategy is designing a way to deal with the challenge and your strategy is a a coherent set of analysis concepts and policies that respond to a challenge so you work out what the challenge is and then you combine the analysis of the concepts and the actions that you need to go and do that so you start for that basis all the time that's 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 where the start of market, market orientation is now that's pretty hard because it's Hard to know where to start in the whole thing, but that is that is the starting position, devising the strategy, and understanding how to win and where to play. So typically, now here's how I do it, um, and I'm doing this as I say because I'm devising a new three-year plan at the moment. I throw everything out that I know, observe what I'm saying about uh, what I currently believe in my own head, and say, could I challenge that? And then I look at all the competitors, put that through a filter of what they're saying, what they're doing and say, is that better or worse than what I'm thinking about? Why do I say it's better or worse? What's my reaction to that? Then I go to third-party analysis and say, do I believe that with that in mind? Now we've seen how it is we're doing. And then I come together and obviously I talk to the existing team, talk to management, and I combine that to an overall model. But what I do do is, though, I wouldn't put a touch there, is I do look at guys, companies, who brands who I admire. They could be FMCG brands, they could be... Silicon Valley brands, they could be B2B brands. And I look at and go, they've got a lot more firepower. They've got a lot more brain power working on their brands than I do. So what can I learn from that? That's a good point, actually, in terms of brain power and I suppose in terms of resource. So 
our side, we had the luxury of working with startups and small businesses all the way up to large enterprises. And strategy is understandably a significant thing for all, but is it less significant the smaller you are? Uh, well, I have some particular skin in this game. Obviously, I've worked for brands like uh, Thomas Cook, who've been around 170 years at this stage. I've worked for startups and I've worked for businesses that were in turnaround, like what we were trying to do uh, for BMI. The, literally in the last year, I've also taken money out of my own pocket and invested in an e-commerce startup. And what I've noticed, and uh, you know, I've been... I couldn't really put a coherent kind of frame of reference around this. I couldn't really get my ideas together on this till I started investing my own money and started counting, if you will, the dollars and cents, pounds, shillings and pence that I put into it. And I realized that we're in marketing, we're surrounded by all the big brands with the big budgets. And what we hear about these big brands and big budgets all the time and, and, and all the, the column inches and uh, all the articles, all the Harvard Business Review case studies, they're around those big brands. And where in the SME world, you're hoping to make payroll. Right? You're not worried about strategy. You're just literally hoping to make payroll and you know, make the uh, make make the uh, you know, make payment to the biggest supplier um, over the you know over the following couple of months. And it really, it's survival is what their notion is. The idea of brand building and so on and, and creating big brand campaigns—it's out of the picture because you'd be broke. Okay, so I think there's a dichotomy there where. Uh, I'm sure for listeners there, they must have felt a little bit of that going, you know, in my business, this thinking about strategy, is it really 100% relevant? So where I have now is a slightly different take on it. Your strategy is still relevant. It doesn't have to be grandiose. It doesn't have to be, you know, something written on five or six pages. It can be something very simple, which is we are going to build sales overnight, brand over time. We're going to use direct response. I'm going to use even some of Byron Sharp's How Brands Grow Thinking, which is we're going to focus on fame as a strategy. And, and it can be as simple as that. Uh, small brands have some challenges, but they're very different to big brands. So you've got to actually maybe don't drink the big brand Kool-Aid when it comes to being a small brand. Yeah, we're linking that back to an earlier point about marketing education. Is that is that a um, concern we should have in terms of column inches and, and, and in fact, in this instance, the marketing textbooks, which typically would be a, more a reflection of big brands rather than, than the reality? I mean, the reality is that 99% of businesses in the UK are qualified as small businesses. All businesses essentially are small businesses, no matter what way you could it. Uh, it turns out the stats, I did the stats for the States, I did the stats for Australia and the stats for Europe. It's 95% plus of all businesses are small. Okay? Mm-hmm. The big difference, however, from when I started my career before is the tools and capabilities and the platforms are now sort of democratized for these SME businesses. Whereas, you know, say 20 years ago, you might be able to get out the door with a radio campaign, a couple of print ads in the newspaper if you're a small small business. Now, of course, um, you can build a business from scratch purely on Facebook advertising. You can build a business from scratch purely on search engine optimization. So the, the opportunity really is with big businesses. Uh, just I wrote a, a really detailed note on direct-to-consumer businesses. And I'm, I'm really uh, direct-to-consumer brands, I should say. And I've really got involved in the detail of that. And I did, I looked at this particular case study of a brand called um, Hubble, I think it is, who do um, glasses and who do um, contact lenses. And they built the business for the first year purely on Facebook advertising. That's never existed in the history of 
you know, literally in the history of marketing, the history of business, that I can take one channel and get to 10 million within a year or two. If they'd followed the strategy textbook, and that's in uh, Stanton, William J. Stanton's book or uh, Kotler or anything like that, they would never have done that. Yeah, They went and said, what I need is sales overnight, brand over time, and I need direct response. And I'll use PR maybe to develop uh, you know, a little bit of PR out there. In fact, Byron Sharp writes about this. He says, a lot of small businesses think their job is to tell the world why they should buy from them. It sounds a little bit like brand to me. But the biggest battle for small businesses, especially those starting out, is people don't know who you are and don't know how to buy from you. And these new tools, these new platforms enable you to get the name in front of them and enable you to buy from you. So that's why I kind of go, hmm, when I see the case studies and I see these big brands, I'm like, you can't follow it religiously, particularly if you want to stay in business. Yeah, it's not the most efficient route. And certainly in that instance for Hubble, do you believe that's essentially why it worked then? It was that it was that huge reach that they had on via Facebook advertising. It, it was also the fact that they could measure everything through. Now, I, and as I say, I have skin in this game. I've invested in a business that's a fairly boring, bland, middle-of-the-road product that's essentially commoditized, and it's an e-commerce business. And we're following pretty much the same strategy, which is we're focusing on SEO, we're focusing on AdWords, and we're focusing on Facebook advertising and keeping a decent CPA and a decent CPC. And next year, however, we may go and use more visual uh, assets, but the chances of us going on television or taking a full page ad out in more orthodox channels, like the newspapers winner, is zero. Zero, because it's just too much risk for the business. Every single dollar has to count. So that's why I say, uh, you know, uh, I, we have to be realistic as marketers. Not everything is one size fits all. Uh, you know, there are, we still have done the segmentation, we still have done the targeting, we still have done the positioning, we're still invested in great design, we're still focused on activation. But we don't go and say, our strategy is to create the biggest brand. No, we go and say, the brand is developed, sales overnight, brand over time, to this segment, with this targeting, and with this positioning. And essentially, it's making it easy for people to buy, isn't it? I mean, you've talked, you regularly use the word friction, and it's something you've talked about uh, numerous times. And, and, and in truth, it's part of the reasons I started reading all of your, your articles uh, with Marketing Week. What I love so much about it is it's such a simple concept. It's fair to say it probably goes hand in hand with Ehrenberg Bass and, and Byron Sharp and his Motley crew regarding mental and physical availability. But that idea that friction exists everywhere and it's a case of removing it is very true. You know, the, the, the friction reward thing, uh, I find it just fascinating. There's, a, there's an author called Richard Hammond who's written Smart Retail. And I picked up his book and I read the first three chapters. And not only did I love the first three chapters, I went and hired him to be a speaker. Um, at a conference I was organizing and I'm getting him again because it, it's, it, you know, the way he articulates the word friction and you realize, oh, we're surrounded by friction everywhere. You can get away with friction if you've got what I call a lock on your customers. Yeah. If you, if, if you have a situation whereby they've no real choice whether to go anything else. And I'm really talking about the the energy companies, the banks, uh, the telecos, whatever. They can create all the friction you like. Um, but the the you and me running our FMCG brand, our, you know, our e-commerce brand, when switching costs are marginal, 
then you can't create any friction. And now I see the world through this lens of friction and reward the whole time, and I can see it in front of me. Let me give you an example. So we were setting up this a couple of years ago. I had the task of setting up the business bank account for the e-commerce business. I was the one who told me, you go do that. I walk into the bank and I say, I'd like to set up the business bank account. I've been in this particular branch with my account for 32 years. So I really want to bring the business here as well. The next thing that happened in the next five seconds was, here's the 25 page form I've got to fill out. It's handed over to me. Fill in that form, I'll come back to you. And I said, I don't fill in forms. Yeah. And she's like, well, you have to fill in the form. I'm like, you've got 32 years of history. You know more about my finances than I know about my finances. Yeah. I just, you still have to fill in the form. And I said, I don't have to do anything. You don't understand. I don't have to do anything. And I walked out the door and I went across the road and uh, I, I phoned my sister up actually, who just set up a, a business a bank account. And I said, can you introduce me to those guys? But you have to say these following words. I don't fill in forms to her. And uh, she said, yeah, yeah, come up. And I went in 10 minutes later, I walked out and all that business, that whatever the hundreds of thousands of, uh, of pounds of that business has now gone to, to another bank because they created friction. So the lens, that, like one of the takeouts from this particular podcast is I want people to walk around the world going, is this friction? Who's causing this friction? Why are we causing this friction? Are we just doing it for legacy reasons? How can I create reward, even mini rewards, right through a booking process, right through a purchase process? Uh, it, it's just a fantastic lens to view the world through. Well, funny enough, Rory Sutherland made a similar point on our episode with him about how marketers tend to be obsessed with anything that is additive. We're always looking to add things, but actually removing something like removing friction in an e-commerce uh, process is overlooked but why it makes so much sense well there's a funny thing with this one um uh, which is having run i ran a hundred million dollar euro e-commerce website in 2006 so i've been running a lot of websites for years and the problem is you're kind of incentivized to create friction if you want to upsell and cross sell. so we have a we have a, a problem which is you know, as Steve Krug writes in the book called Don't Make Me Think, the websites and most things, we don't want the customer to think because it creates cognitive load, okay? Mm. That's what Steve Krug says. It's a, it's a brilliant encapsulation of what the problem is. For friction, don't make me think. But if you look at any airline website out there and most um, e-commerce websites, they're kind of incentivized to keep upselling you and cross-selling you and sort of, if you will, force you to get, get involved in friction. Because the, the, the what's, what's called the, the uh, attach rate of these things is a lot of revenue for them. If an airline sells an insurance policy, that's a lot of revenue for them. If a, a clothing retailer line gets you to buy socks or shoes or whatever it is, as in addition to the shirts and trousers you already bought, it's really high upsell. So you have to observe friction, but within the context of, is this actually personalizing the experience for the customer correctly? Or am I just trying to create fiction for the sake of it that I could cut out? Yes, yes, that's a good point, actually. They're two different things. Is it fair to say that, I don't know, Amazon's one-click purchase is a good example of, of removing friction? I would say if you, the, the, the best in the world is booking.com. These guys are just insane. I sat through a presentation from the folks in booking.com last week at a conference in London, a big travel conference in London. And I, 
the guy was clearly five times smarter than anybody else in his panel session. And the level of insane data and tests and tens of thousands of A-B tests that they're running at any one time means that uh, as a marketer, the people you need to look at about the friction reward game is booking. Every single copy, every single pixel counts on the page. And, and it's valid in, um, you know, offline experiences also, customer service, etc. Well, you know, uh, uh, I've got this collection of, you know, kind of like uh, things that make me angry as I walk around the world. Friction is one of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. being turning into a grumpy old man. Um, but one of the things that, like, again, it's, it's, it's a bit of fun, but it's, it's also true. So if I'm a, uh, I'm a guy and I want to, uh, maybe I want to go buy some clothes, okay? What's the situation in almost every sort of department store? The men's clothing is downstairs or on the second floor or the third floor, and you gotta go look for it, yeah? And you know what happens? Yeah. You get in 10 feet and you say, this looks like too much like hard work, I'll turn back around and forget yeah. that. And so even these small <laughs> little things, I mean, at the of times I go, you know what I do? I'll go and get that shirt or whatever, and then I go, ah, oh, this is so much like hard work. Uh, this is cute. You know what? I'll go back on line. Whereas for women's clothing and, you know, it's always on the same ground floor, it's easy to find, and it's just like, ah. Oh. So, as I say, it's a personal hang-up, it's got, you know, no basis in reality or common sense whatsoever. But I, that's, as I said, because I see the world with this fiction reward stuff, I think I'd have shelled out a lot more club money and clothing if I could just get to the, sh- the place in the shop, you know. But now I'm like, ah, forget it, Mark Suspense's third floor, hey, doing that. <laughs> yeah just let me spend my money. Spend money yeah i'm like that with queues we're we're, co- we're surrounded by sandwich shops here in in wokingham and i can see the queues from my window and if there's a queue i just can't even do it i tell you I, but it's off it, it is it is often the um the trivial things isn't it it's the it's the small detail that can be significant so my one of my pet hates is wobbly tables in pubs and restaurants i just can't stand it yeah it's the problem is now is you, you you're i can see it sensible already you're turning into a grumpy old man just, just keep going the whole time <laughs> it's, 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 it's going to escalate it's kind of like remember i talked about the curve that just kind of exponentially <laughs> grows that's what happens you start going you know get off my land <laughs> <laughs> i think the curve was a few years ago mate to be honest, <laughs> yeah and no, i'm often told it's, that. A, it's, it's very interesting though it's, it's just what I would say to the people listening again, just use this lens, just like we were talking about strategy, we were talking about education earlier. Just think, am I, are we just creating fiction for the sake of it? Or is it because it's some policy that is handed by a lawyer? And if you're a passionate marketer, it's, it's your role, your responsibility to get rid of that. Uh, it's really just it's the thing. In fact, I'll give you a story. So um, I was working uh, a good few years ago. Um, actually, it was one of the first jobs I had. And I had to uh, uh, deliver the aforementioned jams and marmalades around the uh, around supermarkets. It was a very good, very good experience. I hated it at the time, and then I went, you know, this is good experience, yeah. And I remember my boss coming to me going, so uh, Colin, you know, what, what is it? Is it why are we not shifting product here? Like, it's, is it the brand? You know, is it the taste? Is, what's going on? What is it the label? And I'm like, no. They can't find it in the shop. She's no, 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 it's not that. I was like, no, 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 they can't find it in the shop. Yeah? And I have to say, that particularly <laughs> funny experience, has, I'd say, has been around maybe 20%, 30% of uh, any success I've had in my career is just the get the product in front of the punters. You never know. They might put their hand in their pocket. That's it. I mean, <laughs> that's mark, my marketing strategy success right there. Get it in front of the punters. It turns out Byron Sharp has codified that and turned it into a book, but I wasn't that smart. 
Well, it is, it is all based on that, isn't it? Is that mental, physical availability? Well, when I, when I read that and... first, whenever it was a couple of years ago, I was like, oh, you mean getting stuff in front of people? Oh, I was working in Australia and I, I, got, I, I had an amazing job at Tom's Group. It was literally a dream job, okay? And then but I, had this, I had this passion to go to work in the music business because uh, I was a music fanatic when I was a teenager and just this is what I want to do. And so I got a job in a very well-known music brand is the best way to put it. And I was the head of classics jazz, all these big brands. And it launched a very famous singer in Australia. And we got him into top 30 in the charts when those charts were important and all the rest of it. And the, here's how I did it. It's as simple as this. I went and said, I want you to play this, this particular song in the shop and I want you to make sure we buy all the end aisles so people can shop. And I want the sales guys to go in and tell them that this is this guy and to give them incentives to do it. Now, you might kind of go and say, well, Colin, that's, that's kind of what everybody's doing. Well, you would be amazed. I sounded like Moses had come down from the mountain with <laughs> the, 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 the stele, with the, with, the, with, the, with the stuff carved in stone that they were like, God, you're a guru. And it's like, really? Can people... So, you know, it's one of the things I go and say, you people don't think of some of the stuff, like mental availability, physical availability. It's like a thing everybody now knows, but it's been around for 50 years and it's pretty bloody obvious. You can build a whole career on that. That's what I did. Talking about experience then, you, you see so you had a time as European marketing director at 118, 118. Now, during your time there, there were some iconic ads that, that came out. So, so what, was that, what was that like and what made those ads so great? Um, well, the, the, the little bit of background is, is, is the bit that makes it even more intriguing. Okay? Because first of all, the, the original idea of the two runners uh, came about in around 2003. And um, a couple of people claim uh, to have had the original idea. But when I did some background checking on it, it was, it was as with many things, it was a combination of things uh, that came together. Uh, but the very interesting point was they deregulated uh, director inquiries. And one particular guy in New York spent two million quid just to get that number. Okay. And three years later, he did the same thing in France. He spent two million quid to get a number. And then he did the same in Ireland and he did the same in Switzerland. Okay. And then the, the, the runner's idea came through and they did, it, it was like, it was Byron Sharp through and through the, the, the physical and mental availability, um, never changing from the core message, you know, using the core message till you were sick of it. And, uh, so it was, it's very interesting. So then I get to be involved in it and it turns out many of the marketing, all the campaigns across Europe, France, Germany, sorry, France, Switzerland, and Ireland, they have runners in them. Slightly different numbers, but they have runners in them. And then I have to start shooting the television campaigns. And each year we would refresh the TV campaigns. And it was a very strict edict all the time. Do not mess with the number. The word, Colin, is pack shot. Pack shot mm. is the word. And we want to be able to see the 118, 118, or in, in, in the case of uh, France, Sunday, 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 we want to see that from second one, not like a reveal at the end of the 30 second ad. No, 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 no. The ad has to be seen, uh, sorry, the, the brand has to be seen from second one. And so the concept of pack shot, which I'd kind of vaguely known before, was drilled into my head. And, I, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't clever, it wasn't smart, it wasn't beautiful, 
but boy, does it make a lot of money. Uh, the, the number, uh, I know the, uh, when I was working there, the amount of money that the gentleman who invested the two million quid uh, originally in 2003, I know how much money he earned from it, and it was nine figures, not six figures, it was nine figures. And amid nine figures, uh, he made just from having that one insight, which is, let's go buy these numbers, let's have you know ads that drill home the number, and let's not mess with the packaging, let's not mess with anything, let's just get it out there. And then eventually we, we, we moved the strategy on from ads to pure sponsorship because obviously the, the top of mind was there and what we were trying to do is just keep uh, unaided top of mind going the whole time. So yeah, I actually have a great story there. I was shooting the campaign, first day, eight o'clock, big TV crew, big crew, six months of work, lots of iteration, and there we are in Enfield, North London, eight o'clock in the morning, the day of the riots in Enfield. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we got it done. Uh, it, it was a fun thing. So yeah, you, the the best laid plans of a lot of mice and men. So yeah, another outtake for everybody here is you may not want to. You may want to have to take on your agency here because they don't want to hear pack shot. They don't want to hear the beautiful piece of creative with the reveal at the end. Or they want to hear the beautiful piece of creative with the reveal, reveal at the end. But I say, think about probably one of the world's most iconic brands ever. Whatever you think about the brand, you have to admit that Marlborough is one of the world's most iconic brands. And I'd say about 99% of all Marlborough ads had the pack shot. So that's the image I'd like to leave in your mind. If you want to get a brand across to get physical and mental availability, you've got to think in terms of where's my pack shot in all communications. And, and, and just think about it from the customer's perspective. You know, he's not lying awake at night thinking about 118, 118. He's not lying awake at night thinking about Marlboro. Well, they might be thinking about their cigarettes. It's a totally different thing. But they're not lying awake at night thinking about your brand. So their first port, the first item on the list is always, do we have physical and mental availability? And can we use that through, through you know, what I call, a, you know, inverted commas, pack shot thinking. Yeah, do you think agencies are, or, or many agencies, are loath to go that route because there's too many people that perceive themselves as, I don't know, artists or something? They're, they're too ashamed to just go the pack shop route? Because you're right, it's effective. It's effective. I would not be, um, having worked with some of the most amazing agencies in, in, in London, New York and Sydney, I wouldn't be, uh, be loath to criticise agencies so I know what a tough game it is and I know how badly they're briefed in many cases because I've been that person who wrote those crappy briefs. Um, I... No, I wouldn't say that. I would just, you, one has to work hand in glove with them to go and get across that certain things we want. I, you know, I, 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 I am what I call a commercial marketer. You know, I'm driven by sales and driven by revenues and driven by numbers. I'm not what I call a pure brand marketer who's thinking about the brand 24-7. My first priority, it's what I'm hired for, is sell more stuff, okay? And if anything gets in the way of selling more stuff, it's my moral obligation to go and work out what that is. It could be friction. It could be the fact that we're not showing the pack shot till the final three seconds of the ad, but by any means necessary. And you've got to bring your agency along with them on that because they may not be as commercially minded as you are because they've got a different, slightly different agenda. Should we do a couple of listener questions? Um, get, get into it if you want. Uh, we'll see what <laughs> whether I can answer this topic. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us. So we've selected two as usual, and we'll start with Bex. 
Um, and it's good, actually, because there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about, both uh, AI and um, your racing driver uh, hat that you wear at times. And, and, and these come up in the question. So Bex asks, I know you're a big advocate of data-driven marketing and AI, even into the realm of creativity, as well as a keen racing driver. Would you watch motor racing if the cars were driven by robots? Uh... Never in a million years, not in this lifetime <laughs> or the next. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it, funny. Like, I, I people always kind of get say, off the fence. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this lifetime or the next. Yeah. No, I people always go and say, you know, what about? The problem is, I'm old school. My my dad dragged me to motor racing when I was four years old, so I can't escape my past. So you know, like the uh, like the. Uh, the person at the theater loving the roar of the grease paint and the smell of the crowd. I love the, uh, the the smell of the engines, the noise. That's it. And if you've ever been to, say, not the current motor, but Formula One cars, but say some of the old school Formula One cars and heard them rev and drive by you, it's such a visceral, emotional experience. Like a little tear goes down my eyes. I hear it. Yeah. <laughs> the robo racing's never going to take off. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, a lot of my kind of buddies are into motor racing as well. Obviously, Formula E is uh, taking off as well, and I refuse. I'm like a refuse nick on the on the cars with no engines. So yeah, I'll have to kind of grow up a bit. I appreciate, but uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, well, well, actually, I'll, I'll I'll throw in another question then. What do you think about the concept of auto driving robot cars and all that? Well, you know, when, when it comes to the street, absolutely, it's it, 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 you can see that the writing's on the wall. I may be a, I'm actually obviously a total hypocrite because I have four or five cars all in various states of disrepair, but I cycle everywhere. You know, I mean, I literally cycle everywhere. I think the last time I drove my car was three or four weeks ago. So if you live in the city anywhere. Um, the writing's on the wall in terms of all that sort of stuff, but it's still another, it's a good few years away because obviously it's uh, the tech, sorry, the PR is ahead of the tech. Yeah, and I think the other thing people overlook is um, when they make these predictions is that, you know, like like yourself, people love cars. I mean, they don't always own four NGs, but um, people do love cars. They're playing with their cars. They save up for their cars. They're proud of their cars, you know. So to go into something a bit more autonomous and, you know, same, same samey, just... um, I just, I just don't, I don't see the logic. I see the logic in theory of it being a good thing, uh, but I think in practice, there's, there's quite a few obstacles. There's a great, um, you know, kind of riffing on this particular topic in a book called The uh, Fall of Advertising: The Rise of PR by Al Reese, written around 2004. And um, I remember reading it, and he was talking through this concept. That I, at the time, I was like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about there. But what he said: all uh, things that are once were empty every day can eventually become art or become culture. And I was like, well, what is he really talking about here? And he uses the example of a horse and cart. So in 1900, a horse and cart was an everyday thing. There was no particular value associated with the horse horse itself. They were sent off to the knackered yard, knackers yard and boiled out for glue uh, and, and so on. They were just not seen as a thing. But obviously cars came in and now horses are prized items that cost a heck of a lot of money. Now, they're still the same thing. They're still a horse. What happened? Our worldview often changed, okay? And that's what's going to happen with everyday cars. Our worldview will change. They'll, they may turn into kind of art. Now, there's a, there's a, my new article for Marketing Week is, is talking about this particular topic, and it's called What's on the Edge? What's on the Edge? And it, it's a lens on how to see the world and look at things and go, what's really happening on... 
at the edge of society. And I don't mean li the literal edge, you know, that's, that's seedy. I mean, just like things that are kind of bubbling under that you think maybe, I don't know. And what's bubbling under right now with cars, as an example, is that they're more and more becoming art things like uh, classic cars and so on. Uh, they just sold a Ferrari there a couple of months ago for $70 million, whereas 10 years ago, that same car was $7 million. Okay. Um, there's a lot of retro thinking about historic race cars, which is what I uh, race as well. And then if you just extend that out and you say, hmm, what's on the edge? Well, then in 2009, I think it was, um, if you'd come to me and say, there's this little Lotus car, little small little sports car that's powered by a battery that can do 150 kilometers, and that company is going to become the most famous company in the world. You would just have laughed at me. I, I, I did laugh at it because I was like, well, that's a Lotus with a battery in it. And the car has been made by Lotus. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a Lotus and not a very successful Lotus. And that company is Tesla, okay? And that same car is now floating around in space. And it's now worth more than Ford and GM and all together. So what I say is look at what's on the edge and go, could that really be possible? Is this the thing that's the early part of the adoption curve? You know, the adoption curve. And is it gonna go mainstream? And so I'm using this as a lens for, for a lot of things. And obviously the example being right now, um, obviously known about uh, climate change for a long time known about waste and plastics for a long time and it's been there in the background it was on the edge if you will and now it's pretty much front and center and people are now reconsidering their own use of plastic they're considering you know, flying they're considering reconsidering everything so look for the ideas that are on the edge and go what would happen if that became mainstream that's some investment advice there. <laughs> yeah, uh, consult your broker before uh, <laughs> taking all on investment advice. <laughs> we'll run a caveat at the end yeah, of the exactly, show. Yeah. Uh, stocks seem to open as well as down. Yeah. So um, question two, Mark says, I'm a copywriter. I am admittedly a Luddite after writing copy by candlelight in an old coaching tavern. That said, do you really think AI can truly produce not only effective copy, but more importantly, distinct copy with unique human wit? I'd worry that brand tones of voice would end up sounding the same. So, uh, again, we have to go back to, to answers. I'll have to kind of have to, 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 to basics and definitions and so on. So, first of all, I happen to know a little bit about our artificial intelligence because the company I work for has 10 guys, guys and gals, working on uh, artificial intelligence, uh, next best action, big data, whatever, you know, whatever the buzzword du jour is, that area, they're, they're, they're working on it. And um, I had to write a lot of white papers and I really had to kind of deep dive and talk to the, 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 the doctor who runs the whole division and go, you know, what's really going on here? And so much about what's written about AI is either hype or variation about it's going to take our jobs. But most people don't know what it is. And AI is basically just uh, things that normal that require normal human intelligence, which is visual perception or speech recognition or decision making or translation. It, it, it can perform those tasks. Okay. But the only way it can perform those tasks is if it has tons of data. And tons of data would be, in the case of a copywriter, he's got like, you know, a thousand ads with the exact results from each of those particular series of copywriting and, um, and then the, the, the overall, you know, cut through rate, conversion rate, whatever the, the, the measure is. And so could AI replace copywriting? The answer is, I would never obviously say, no, it's not possible. But if you take what it is, is 
could it do a lot more test to learn? Could it do a lot more improvement of what it is? Mm, uh, at this moment, no, because you can even see the recommendation engines are not that smart. But the second thing I, I, I would then really argue is, and there's a very interesting book called The Creativity Code by Marcus de Sattel, who's much more um, erudite and much more articulate uh, than me on this. But he talks about what, you know, much of what we talk about being creative is, is copying or combining or synthesizing rather than sitting in the coach, the, the, the coaching in by candlelight. And I'm sure actually this is what this copyright is doing as well. But he talks about creativity being either combinatorial, which is mashups, combining different things that are unfamiliar. And the second one of type of creativity is uh, exploratory, which is kind of using ex what's existing, what's possible, and just building on that. And he uses the example, say, impressionist painting, which built on previous... Um, previous styles and then it's transformational creativity which is total game changing which is you know james joyce writing finnegan's wake or or, or, or ulysses total breaks from the past and uh, as satire quotes uh, the picture professor margaret bowden that the first two types of creativity which is sort of a version of copying or learning from the past is 98 percent of what we call creativity uh, and they've done the, they've done the research to prove it so where does that leave our, you know, our AI, right, our, our copywriter who's possibly threatened by artificial intelligence? I can tell you hands on, having seen the results of artificial intelligence live through what I'm doing in my day, day job, they can barely answer a, um, a decent question of customer service correctly at this moment, okay? <laughs> Not because they're bad, they're just, it's hard. Yeah, it's just hard. And then you add in, different culture, different eras, different, it's nah, like he's going to be employed for the rest of his life, which leads me to another point for any young people listening, the copywriting skill, the ability to write words and the ability to understand language is the superpower of a marketer because those words help you actually engage correctly with that copywriter. They also help you understand what language is so you can actually go decide whether a heading, a call to action is correct, but it also makes you more articulate and it makes you better able to get your ideas across as well. So copywriting is one of the superpowers of marketers in 2019. Great answer, presumably very encouraging for Mark to hear. Um, I know Mark, in fact, and he's a very, very talented wordsmith. So um, I think that, that latter point you've made about copywriters is, is, is incredibly uh, accurate. I, I would have to tell you that I didn't realize, I knew writing was difficult. I, we all know writing is difficult. We've all written projects, we've all written documents. But until you have to write a column every, every month for four or five years, that's when you realize, oh, this is a lot <laughs> harder than people think. So, and then a double down, a copywriter is going to deliver copy that works by a certain deadline rather than me who likes to wait for the muse to come to him and come up with his crazy ideas. Yeah, it's doing it on demand, oh, isn't it? It's a whole different ball Total respect. So the final part of the interview then, Colin, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. So number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? Don't worry about it. Don't, anything between the age of 20 and 25, it doesn't matter. If you want to go and learn surfing, Colin, go and do it. If you want to go and learn motor racing, go and do it. There's plenty of time to work hard in the day job that you want. But make sure you start learning and loving to read books earlier rather than later. 
So life starts at 26. Pretty much career, serious career start at 25, 26. Uh, I mean, yeah. I come from the generation where my mother uh, and my father basically said, like, I know you finished you know, university, it's time to get a job. And there was no element of like, well, you know, I just want to kind of like, what if I just want to go around Latin America and hang out? No, no, no. Get a job, get out and get a job. And, and actually, because I work in marketing, my mother still doesn't know what I do. I'm still waiting for me to get a job. And, you know, <laughs> even when I did the MBA, like years <laughs> after leaving, you know, she's like, would you not get a job in the bank? Would you not just get a job? It's much more safe. And then I have to discuss things like Lehman Brothers with her. And I kind of find I'm losing her, losing the argument. <laughs> I just love the idea of her waiting for you to get. I'm just still waiting for you to get a real job. It's like, yeah. you know, and then I look at her and go, maybe I should. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I should. Yeah, uh, Colin, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Banish. Mm. I don't know where to say platforms. Like you know, banish Snapchat or something like that. Um, I just. Yeah. I, I, I tell you what, it really just bugs me at the moment is I banish lazy thinking. If you look at this mm. whole purpose-driven brand stuff or the concepts around people talk about millennials and so on, it's just lazy thinking. It's like, uh, yeah, let's just uh, label it as uh, millennials and uh, let's call it that. And then it becomes a thing and then it develops its own head of steam. And you're thinking, this is, uh, it causes problems for those who work as professional marketers because they got to unwind all these crazy ideas that people have picked up, yeah, the whole time. No, no, we're not going to use the word millennials as, as a segment. No, we don't have a Snapchat strategy. That's not what we're doing here. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's this kind of thing, lazy thinking. Get rid of lazy thinking. Stop leaving your opinions. Perfect. You've mentioned a few already, but number three is, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? Um, yeah, well, uh, read early and read often. Uh, I, 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 I give you a great story. Uh, it's the only kind of vaguely political related kind of statement and a statement of word kind of insight I can give you is I read a book when I was in holidays called uh, Vanished Kingdoms by Norman Davis, who's a professor of history at Cambridge. And uh, what is very interesting, talks about all these kingdoms that have existed in the past that we no longer remember, such as the, the Burgundian kingdom and the Tolosa kingdom. But he also says on page 12 of that book, he says, there's no real reason for England to continue. He says, I think it's highly unlikely that England will continue its current, or Great Britain will continue its current format. And this is a book was written in 2010. It wasn't a political thing. Yeah, It was just like, oh, he had the insight to go and say, these things, nothing is that permanent. Yeah, And it's was like, what I say to people is read history, read wide, first of all. Okay, then uh, so you, you, what you want to do is get the depth in your existing stuff. So start off reading the basics here. Richard Rommel talking about good strategy, bad strategy. Uh, recent Trout talking about uh, positioning. Uh, April Dunford writing about positioning. Um, assume you know nothing, start reading the books. And it is amazing. You'll go, oh, I didn't. Now, you've got to do one thing, though, before you start diving into things. You've got to learn this concept called deep work by... Uh, oh, I've forgotten the gent's name, but he's a writer in the States where it's how to cut out distraction and how to how to stop, you know, we're, we're skimming across the top all the time. And I, I didn't become a good writer and I didn't become a good reader to like cut out distractions. So until you do that, then you can't read books like Good Strategy, Bad Strategy or Positioned by Reese and Tread or Influenced by Robert Cialdini or obviously 
the aforementioned how brands grow because it requires your brain to be in tune you can't flick across the top I've not read that, but I've, I've looked it up. It's, it's Cal Newport. Yeah, Cal Newport. It's worth reading because you'll do that thing with a book and you go, I kind of know this. And then you'll go, but I don't do this. There's actually, uh, there's a guy called Stephen Pressfield. Um, he's my favorite author, full stop. Okay. And he's got um, a book called The War of Art. Uh, the War of Art. And the second book is called Turning Pro. They're very easy to read. They're very simple. And to me, they're the core, they're the start. You read War of Art, and it basically is like getting cold water and pouring over your head. Because he talks about this concept called the resistance, which stops you doing the work that you need to do. And so start with the War of Art and then turning pro, because if you're a pro marketer, you've read Good Strategy, Bad Strategy about Richard Rumble, you've read Positioning, you've read How Brands Grow, you've yeah. read Michael Porter's Competitive Strategy, you've read Choice Factory by Richard Shotton, you read blogs like Martin uh, Wiggle's blog, Canal Bank blog, you know this material, yeah, and you can talk about it. And it's an ongoing discussion in your brain, an ongoing thought, and a lens that you can put see through the world. because. That's what I call the T-shape bit. You're diving into a detail. And then you start reading wider, like around history, around sociology. You know, you should be reading uh, Sapiens by uh, uh, Harari because that gives you the context to understand humans and getting insight into people. Yeah, so read, read deep in your soul topic and then start doing wide on a lot of other topics. Yeah, you're right. Uh, doing some, some wider reading is, is hugely valuable. Yeah, I mean, when I, when I read, uh, sorry, I mean, so when I read Harari, it was like, oh, I thought I knew it. I don't. This is great. And it actually made me a better marketer. I just now work in the world through a totally different lens on that one book. Perfect. So we always dedicate each episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who has to give their reason why. I'm going to dedicate to the guy who gave me my first job in Thomas Cook, um, without which I wouldn't even be talking to you here. And he did it against the recommendations of everybody else in the uh, in the business. And um, it turns out I got it by the skin of my teeth and all that whole careers were built. So what I say to you, anybody listening here, you know, you're playing with people's lives when you recruit them and you could be given the break of their lives. So just think think through that. That's what this bit of gentleman, John Babister did for me. Ah, perfect. Well, this episode is, is very uh, proudly dedicated to John then. Thank you. My final call to action to everyone listening is that they can head over to this episode online. Um, we've shared links to everything discussed um, and the numerous book recommendations. How else can people get more Colin Lewis? Um, I would have a look at the odd time I tweet on Colin A. Lewis, A as in A, a for alphabet. So Colin A. Lewis at Colin A. Lewis. And um, you can find me on LinkedIn because there's not that many Colin Lewis's in the world, it turns out. Um, I would like you to read my stuff in Marketing Week. Colin Lewis uh, Marketing Week is a search you need to do. And uh, if you really have plenty of spare time in your hands, uh, you might want to go to colinlewis.me, my website that I keep needing to update all the time. But, you know, I do a lot of speaking stuff. You'll see me at the Festival of Marketing. Um, and just realize that when I write these material, I'm writing for you and for me to learn more. So there's a lot of work put into it. It's not some random stuff I throw together. So when I'm writing, like I, I want you to think it through. Uh, and that's, that's my only call to action for people here. Read my stuff because I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking out and I'm hopefully helping you on the way. We'll add all of those links. So um, Colin, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure and privilege to talk. Listen, thank you so much, Giles. It's been great fun. And thank you to everyone listening. Please continue to share and review. Keep the questions and guest requests coming in.
to get in touch with us, simply find Gasp online, check out CTA Pod on Instagram, or email hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try and I try.